0: 2 Kings 4, 1-7. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. Elisha replied to her, How can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said except a small jar of olive oil. Elisa said, Go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars, and as each is filled, put it to the side. She left him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, bring me another one. But he replied, there is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left.
1: It's morning in Honduras. Maria and her daughter, Dina, are 30 minutes into their hours long walk down the steep mountain trail to gather water from the river in the valley. Right now, their water containers are empty and their gait is swift and purposeful. At the river, they will fill their containers with water that is often contaminated, transforming it from a light load to a heavy burden. Their shoulders slump under the weight as they begin their journey up the mountain back home every step drains human potential from the community. Why is water such a vital component of community development? Because lack of access to water drains communities of time, talent, and health. Because lack of access to water prevents women from living full and abundant lives. Because when young girls have to spend time fetching water, they are not able to attend school because for a community to be healthy and vibrant, it needs clean water for all its residents. At Covenant World Relief, we are partners in transformation. We partner with God in God's mission in the world. And by partnering with local grassroots organizations, we multiply our efforts and your gifts. Local partners have staff, expertise, and networks which means more of your donation goes directly to effective ministry. Plus, local organizations hire locally, buy supplies locally, and their staff lives locally. As a result, the whole community benefits. Covenant World Relief is the evangelical covenant church at work in the world for God's glory and our global neighbor's good. To our current financial partners, churches, and individuals, thank you. To our future supporters, join us as partners in transformation.
2: Good morning. It's great to be at Roseville Covenant Church. I think I was here just after our trip to Haiti, who knows, five, six, seven years ago. Um, I'm... I still consider myself relatively new to this denomination. I actually married into the covenant church 35 years ago. But I have lived most of that time outside the U.S. Nine years ago I came to the U.S. to become director of Covenant World Relief. My wife and I were serving as covenant missionaries in Japan and and Asia. The thing that attracted me from the beginning was my wife. The second, thing, <laughs> no. um, the second thing is that I found a group of people who, one, had a deep passion for following Jesus Christ, not just in their personal lives, but in a way that would reach out and touch the lives of others. I found a group of people who were willing to, to even go to the extent of, uh, to agree to disagree on certain issues so that together we could continue to participate in this amazing mission. And so I get to be now a part of that, a small part of that in this ministry called Covenant World Relief. And I wanna thank you as Roseville Covenant Church and some of you as individuals who have been part of this ministry for years, decades, some of you. I believe it's a well-kept secret I'm thankful that Roseville Covenant Church knows about it. (laughs) Um, I'm thankful for the insert that you can learn a little bit more about today. But I'd like to share this morning just um, a bit about some of the recent things. Some people don't even know uh, what's happening in parts of the world because I'm here to tell you that most of our TV networks, I'm not talking about fake news or unfake news, What I'm talking about is they don't tell the news of the world. Mostly we hear about news of what's happening right here. And right now in Yemen we have the the world's largest humanitarian crisis happening. More than a million people have contracted cholera. It's the largest cholera outbreak in recorded history. How often do we hear about that? There's a famine going on in Yemen. And all this is exacerbated by a civil war. We have the privilege of being able to be connected with partners there and are able to address needs. Of course, Syria is in the news a lot, but it's difficult to be able to connect sometimes in certain areas. Fortunately, we've been able to work with partners inside of Syria for those internally displaced people, but also, most recently, I traveled with some other colleagues to Lebanon to be a part of ministry ongoing in the Bekaa Valley in Lebanon with Syrian refugees. Another area obviously we address is is disaster, and in Ecuador, two years ago this month, there was a a large earthquake that uh, caused great damage, death and destruction, particularly along the north coast. There was a covenant church there, there are more than one covenant church, but one in particular got very involved along with the national church and we've been able to be a part of that ongoing work and that work, even though we don't hear about it in the news anymore and it's two years old, will continue for years and we get to be a part of it because of these faithful people who are there who continue to serve those who have suffered. There is a road to transformation. Sometimes people hear our name, Covenant World Relief, and they just think, oh, we respond to immediate disasters and that is true. But actually, our hope is that the relief phase will be very short and that there will be then a a, a period of recovery and then long-term development because it's in that that whole phase that God is at work in people changing their lives and this is actually the story of each one of us. Most of us don't talk about a, a moment when somehow we were this way and then God changed us completely and we were no longer the same. Most of us have a journey that we're going on and God is at work changing us and this is the work of Covenant World Relief around the world. We just had this passage read for us from 2 Kings and uh, it's one of those great stories. I grew up in the church hearing this wonderful story but you know in some time back as I was reading it, it struck me. Here we have a, a widow You know, I've learned through my travels throughout the world that in most of the world, and for most of human history, widows have been among the most vulnerable. Because when a woman loses her husband in many places, both in the past and even present, she is defenseless. She often is resourceless. In many parts of the world, when a Even today, when her husband dies, the woman is not able to, even though the law says she can, she's not able to have her land and the house that they lived in. She is forced off. She's often left to try to figure out how she's going to take care of her kids. Sometimes the kids are taken away from her. But here we have in this story a very desperate widow who comes to the prophet and just says, my husband's died, he was, he's been a faithful servant of the Lord, and he's not only just died and, and left me without him, he's left me with a debt. And my debt is such that they're gonna come and take my two sons away. She's a very desperate person. She doesn't mention the, the fact that her, her personal safety and well-being is in, is in jeopardy. And the prophet hears the story and he responds in a very natural way the way I, I hope most all of humanity would, and that is, what can I do to help? Here's a very desperate woman, what can I do to help? That's the natural response. The next question is the one that is a bit jarring that I think sometimes we forget to ask. The next question, somehow it didn't get on my slide, I apologize for that, the next question is, do you remember what he asked her? After said, what can I do to help? What do you have in your house? Wait a second. I've lost my husband. I'm about to lose my kids. I, I'm in debt. What are you asking me? And so her response is, well, I have basically nothing except for a little bit of oil. Now, the prophet Elisha, probably didn't go to graduate school in international development. (laughs) But he gets this. Why? Because he knows how our God works. We serve a God who has chosen to work with whatever is available. Do you remember when Moses was standing before the burning bush and, and God was trying to get him to to, to, to take this responsibility of leading the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, he didn't want to do it. Finally, God says, Remember the question? What do you have in your hand? And Moses says, I got a stick. he oh, said, I have a staff. It sounds a little more spiritual, but he had basically a stick. Now, if you know that story, you know that that stick God used to do amazing things, parting the Red Sea, getting water out of the rock. God took that stick and used it for his glory to bring about his salvation for the children of Israel. In the New Testament, of course, even more famous story, when Jesus is in front of those thousands of people who are hungry, And they're talking about feeding him. And his followers, the disciples, are saying, you're crazy, we we can't feed all these people. And somebody says, you know, there's one little boy with a lunch. Remember what Jesus' question was? How many loaves do you have? (laughs) You know, it's one lunch. Come on, Jesus, there's thousands of people. And you say, how many loaves do you have? What does it matter if there's two or seven? We can't feed all these people with that. Well, it turns out there's five. And Jesus took those five loaves and all people were filled with leftovers. This is the God we serve. So back to Elisha, he says to the woman, what do you have in your house? And she says, all I have is a little bit of oil. Well, the reality is Elisha knows she's got more than that. She actually has a lot of what we would call assets, right? She's got a house, She's got two sons, apparently she has her health and we know through the story she has one more very important thing, she's got friends. That was a huge asset in this particular event. What if she had been a cranky woman who lived by herself, didn't get along with anyone? How many jars would she have gotten? Apparently, this woman had a lot of friends, and she was able to collect a lot of jars, because as they started pouring, and this amazing thing happening, the, the oil didn't run out. They just kept pouring and pouring and pouring until finally, at the last jar, the oil ran out. And she reports to the prophet, Elisha. And he says, good, okay go pay off your debts and live on what's left over. There was a lot of oil there. Her debt was wiped clean and she was able to now go forward. Can you imagine if the prophet Elisha had just taken the attitude that sometimes I might have and just said, oh, can I give you a little bit of money? I'll help you out a little bit. I can't pay off your debt, but, and then we'll have to figure out how you're gonna actually feed yourself. The prophet Elisha knows the God we serve, is the God who takes a little and does great things with it. In Covenant World Relief, I have the privilege of working with some amazing people in organizations around the world. These organizations really, in some ways, because of circumstances they live in, they, they see these things far better than I do, have grown up in the country without great need in my life. And so as they work in communities, they look into the community and see what is there. So there's an organization called the Hindustani Covenant Church in India. I'd love to tell you all that they do, but I'm gonna focus on one thing this morning. This is a church that wasn't started by the Evangelical Covenant Church in the U.S. and Canada. It was actually started by what was then called the Mission Covenant Church of Sweden. They've been around for more than 50 years, but about 10 to 15 years ago, they got connected to a commercial sex worker in Pune. Pune, you may not have... It, it's, it's a big city. It's more than six million people. It has the third largest red light district in, in India. This is where the headquarters of the church is. But by God's leading, this one woman got connected. Her life was transformed. She came out of that work. And the Hindustani Covenant Church said, God is leading us to get engaged in this kind of work. How are we gonna do this? And as they began to think about it, they said, we, we don't have anybody who really knows much about it. We don't, have, we don't we have some, especially some men who have a little bit of study, but that wouldn't be appropriate to send men in there. Very quickly they recognize, "Wait a second, Gangabai. She lived and worked there for 15 years. She'll be our leader. What do you have in your community? Experience. What do you have in your house? We have some people who know what they're doing, who have the relationships and have the networks. Gangabai helped them get started. And Gongabai has helped bring out so many women from that community because they trust her and they know her and she walks around and she talks to them and as they go through the, the counseling process, gradually she helps them come out. And then there's another person called Panna. Panna, she, she's lived in that community a long time. She helped establish, now because of the little children, who uh, are the children of the commercial sex workers who have no place to go, especially when their mother's working. and The younger ones just go under the bed while the mother works. She helped a woman who's in this community, part of the community, helped establish this informal school for children to go, to be there, to learn about Jesus, to sing songs, to, to play games, to be in a place that is far more, a far, has a far more positive atmosphere. And then the women who are coming out get to be a part of this in this home of hope that was established by Women Ministries through Break the Chains several years ago. It's now, just recently, there was a second story put on this place and it's, uh, it's an amazing ministry. And in the ministry itself, they are working with women in counseling and some of these women came when they were 10, 11, 12 years old. They were sold and they've had to be bought out and they've had, they have a lot of scars and it takes a long time, lots of counseling, lots of prayer. But in the process, they're also teaching women vocational skills. And, and one of the small businesses they start started was making communion wafers, I I gave Alicia some last night, so hopefully at some point you can have these wafers because in your communion service, it's so amazing to be able to take part in these wafers, taking these wafers that these women have made when they say we used to sell our flesh and now we get to make the body of Christ. What do you have in your house? We have experience. What do you have? We have transformed women. We're part of a group in South Africa called Zemele Wetu Foundation, This organization gets Zulu women together who have been culturally oppressed for centuries, but because of apartheid they've been further oppressed and they've been told that they're worthless and that they're nothing and all they can do is to bear children. And yet they come along and, and now this organization is saying to women, you're created in the image of God. You have amazing potential you can do great things. These women come together and they they worship together, they save together, they take small loans together. But beyond that, they begin looking around themselves to see how they can serve others. So on this day when I was in the the community, very dry community as you can see, these women were carrying water and I knew they were part of the self-help group and I just assumed they were fetching their water so I asked if I could take their photo and I got permission by the way for those of you that travel it's always important to ask permission before you take people's photos (laughs) so I'm not sure how how happy they were I can't tell by their expression but they said yes I took the photo and then the the the, the director said you probably think they're carrying water for themselves they're not they're carrying water for people who can't get their own water so as a part of this transformation process they go through, yes, their lives are changed and blessed and financially, spiritually, in every way. But they begin thinking now, how can we be a blessing to those around us? So they're, in, they're in, this particular day, they're in a family that um, the mothers had to go to wait to try to earn some money. The father is, is ill and not able to work. And so they come and they clean the yard, they do laundry, they cook, they carry water. So we're driving out of the community and there's this woman sitting by the side of the road and they say, that's widow so-and-so. She was attacked. Uh, She lived on the edge of town. She was attacked, burglarized and uh, traumatized. She said, I can't live out there anymore. So these women using their own resources said, great, we're gonna move you into town and they built her a house. What do you have in your community? We have transformed women. What do you have in your community? Youth. In Monterrey, Mexico, there's the Family Family Development Foundation known as Fundafam, started by covenant missionaries about 20 years ago. Now, there are no missionaries there, particularly because of the violence in recent years. But this foundation really recognizes the treasure of youth and how valuable young people are. And they focus on raising up young people, not just to be productive citizens, but to be disciples of Jesus, and to be leaders in the community, but also in the foundation. And so as they grow up, they're constantly going through different trainings and preparations, and so when I'm down there Uh, I usually go every year, but most of the people now who are leading the foundation are from the community. They have come up through the programs of the organization. They recognize, they see a five-year-old, they see a 10-year-old, they see a 15-year-old, and say, these are people who are future leaders, and they've become leaders. They recognize, what do you have in your community? We've got youth. Finance. Women in Kenya, again, similar to the situation in South Africa, been told that they just need to farm whatever ground they have the best they can and try to provide for the family in that way. Jito Keze, one of the Covenant World Relief partners there in Kenya, is working with these women similarly to the group in South Africa. But these women who have had a mindset have been told that they have nothing and they never will have anything are taught how to come together, support one another, save together, learn better agricultural skills together. And these women now have been able to have healthier families with more food, better nutrition, and their husbands have become so envious (laughs) that now there are men's groups doing the same thing. What do you have in your community? Labor. One of the issues of, especially those of us who are North Americans who go out stopping at that first question, what can we do to help, without asking the second question, what do you have in your house? This is one <clears throat> that in the past has been a particular problem. Because we're grown, we're raised, at least I was, to always look for ways to help people. My father did anything for anyone. He just loved doing things for people. In fact, he, he loved that so much that when I got my first car at age 16, it was, a, it was a broken down Junker car, paid $32 for it. He fixed it for me. And any time there was a problem, he fixed it for me. Unfortunately, my father died eventually. And I was left with looking at my cars throughout the years going, I wish I'd learned how to fix cars. <laughs> In Honduras, we partner with two organizations, one out of Seattle called Water First and a local organization called Cose Pradil. They understand that the real resource, the real human resource is right in the community. And so when, when we do water projects there, part of it you saw in the earlier video, it's the whole community coming together, agreeing to do all the labor, to provide some of the materials, and to contribute monthly for the maintenance of the water system. And the people become so Excited because it's not some outside organization that's simply doing it for them. They are the ones that are doing it. And in the process, they are so proud to say we have done this together. At the culmination of one of these where they're celebrating the new water system, this woman has this jar that you can see in the photo. And she said, all my life, I thought I would be carrying water multiple times a day. She said, but it's amazing. We now have water in our community. With God's help, look what we have done. And then she took that jar, she threw it up in the air, crying out, Never again. Here's a piece of that jar. I kind of ran out without, you know, this crazy white American just I needed a piece of that jar to keep in my office to remind me of the powerful moment when that that jug just broke into many pieces. Most communities have networks that enable local work To be much more effective. In South Sudan and Ethiopia, we're partnering with an organization that, um, this organization is the Evangelical Covenant Church of South Sudan and Ethiopia. They recognize that when all the disasters, both human caused because of violence and also natural disasters, it's not just them that respond, but they are connected now with other organizations so that together they can be more effective. I also have a local church. In Kenya, the local church is such an asset. You know, I walked in last night and Colleen showed me your, the gallery room, and you have all of those ministries that are, you are participating in, and then you've got the other side of the wall where the three mission families. What an amazing impact that one local church can have. So in, in Kenya, this small church When I went in 2009 for the first time, they had 50 members. 240 Congolese refugees showed up some months later. And that pastor could have just said, you know what, and by the way, I think you know Pastor Simon because I know this church has had connection with him. Pastor Simon is an amazing man. He could have said, go away. There's too many of you. We don't have resources. You don't have your papers. Just go back to where you came from. Instead, he said, welcome. You're part of us. I can't tell you the whole story because we're just out of time, but now, nine years later, that 50-member church has become a church of about 700. The vast majority, the the two-thirds of the members are Congolese refugees. And there's another church that's in town that's several, several hundred as well because the church was there and ready to respond and then finally, what do you have? Leaders. In South Thailand, after the tsunami of 2000, December 2004, we got involved through a local organization in Thailand, Covenant Organization, with a response. And it's a long story, but they got involved with the HIV AIDS affected community. And it started with one person, and it just kept spreading and spreading, and, and finally, it, became, it came to the place where they now have seven, it's either seven or nine support groups of HIV-AIDS-affected people all around. Uh, we wrote with someone who, whose mother had already got him a casket and got his funeral picture. She thought he was dead. The story of his transformation is amazing. He, he was saved. He started leading one of these groups. He, who is HIV/AIDS, affected, he whose mother thought he was just a rascal is now leading these groups. And on the day we were there, because of his witness, because of his leadership, we had this beautiful baptismal service in the ocean. What do you have in your community? We've got leaders. You know, we, um, this story that we read today is a story that, has the question, what do you have in your house? And I think it's a question we need to ask ourselves, but I, personally, but I think we also need to ask as a church, what do we have in our church? I think we need to ask it about our community, what do we have in our community? I think we need to constantly ask those questions, recognizing that we serve a God who uses whatever we have to, to do great things for his kingdom. But there's one point I want to close with, that Martin Luther King Jr., who passed away 50 years ago, this past week, he says it's a cruel jest to say to a bootless man that he ought to lift up himself by his own bootstraps. Asking people what they have in their house doesn't doesn't remove us from responsibility of engagement. We need to be a part of the process. It's just that in the process, we need to figure out how do we, what role do we play. We are not the messiahs, there is one messiah. But we need to ask the question, how can we help And what do you have in your house? And then stand back and see the great things that God is going to do. Amen.